Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The continuing resolution funding the government runs out Friday night at midnight. So far, the spending limits Republicans and Democrats agreed to a week or so ago has not translated into bills yet for full 2024 appropriations, which means neither a long-term continuing resolution again nor a shutdown are actually off the table. We get the latest now from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And what is it looking like exactly? Right now, things are looking better, but things were not looking good heading into the weekend. But during the weekend, things changed. House Speaker Mike Johnson and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announcing plans for this new two-step short-term spending agreement. It would go beyond this Friday's deadline and a February 2nd deadline and extend spending through March 1st and March 8th. The State of the Union address is March 7th. First deadline would be for a partial government shutdown as the current one is now with spending for four appropriations bills. The Senate today plans to take a procedural vote to set things in motion. This continuing resolution is expected to get through the Senate and then there will be a House vote, which as usual will include some drama. Conservatives have already made it clear they don't want another short-term spending bill and they're going to vote against it. Speaker Johnson is again going to need the help of Democrats to get this legislation passed, as he did the last time. Also, to avoid a partial government shutdown, two-thirds of the House will need to approve this, but I think it will get done since lawmakers have little choice. Well, if they agreed on a top-line number, why can't they get to a spending bill? I think for a couple of reasons. One, that House Speaker Mike Johnson is new in this position and still trying to get his footing. And secondly, the outsized influence of the House Freedom Caucus. Since the Republican majority is so small, Johnson has, like former Speaker Kevin McCarthy before him, tried to listen to all members of this unwieldy GOP conference. So last week he met with various Republican groups, including hardline conservatives, who he's been close to before becoming Speaker. They essentially said, you haven't been tough enough with the Senate on issues like the southern border and pushing for deeper spending cuts. And after their meeting last week, some thought they had caused the Speaker to open up the possibility of reopening negotiations on that top-line budget number. But he later indicated he was just keeping an open mind and also met with more moderate members of the conference. Most Republicans fully understand that there's no way to quickly pass 12 appropriations bills. And I believe the thinking here is no matter what Johnson does, the House Freedom Caucus is going to be unhappy with him. So he's going to again rely on Democrats, as I mentioned, to avoid a shutdown, while at the same time looking over his shoulder, hoping no conservative makes a motion to vacate the chair, as they did with Kevin McCarthy, who went from being Speaker of the House to no longer being in Congress. You know, and if they remove Johnson and then he leaves the Congress, I mean, the Republican majority is slipping away like sands through an hourglass here. <laughs> it really is. I mean, right now we're down to a two-vote majority, in part because the former House Speaker, who would have thought that, actually left Congress. And then you had George Santos being kicked out of Congress. So you start losing more, and there are retirements on the way as well. They literally are down to, as you say, the sands in the hourglass, one or two or even no votes if, it, if things continue to move the way they are. And you spoke to some of the lawmakers in the Senate and the House on the Democratic side, and they're kind of scratching their heads, sounds like. 
Right. Well, for one thing, related to the deal on the top line, former House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, Maryland congressman, he's been through a lot of these. He said, when you reach a deal, you want to have a deal. You don't want to have to keep renegotiating deal after deal after deal. So he's concerned about it. Uh, I talked to Senator Mark Warner and Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia. Both are once again very concerned about the impact this is going to have because it raises all the uncertainty for federal workers, not to mention contractors with the federal government. They said that they're feeling like it's a bad movie all over again. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent. And Tell us more about what has been happening with the IRS. They got not appropriated money from the regular spending, but they got this $80 billion ostensibly over 10 years. But that $60 billion is shrinking, even though it didn't come from appropriation, normal appropriations. It came from the, I think it was the infrastructure bill. Right. That was also part of this top line agreement where uh, Democrats wanted to basically throw a bone to the House Speaker and said, OK, you can cut away $20 billion to the IRS, but they still have 60 billion dollars that they're now pouring into improving infrastructure within the agency, as well as IT. And one positive note that came out for the IRS was the report from the National Taxpayer Advocate in the letter to Congress last week, basically saying that things, while they are not quite exactly back to normal, remember we talked a lot about those backlogs with the IRS and tax forms and people not being able to get through on the phone and get assistance, a lot of improvement in that area, not to say that that it's all perfect, obviously. But that report indicated a lot of optimism that, that this is really starting to turn around. And the supporters of the funding, many of them Democrats, say that this is really going to help ultimately over the long haul, allowing taxpayers to get the assistance they need. Of course, on the other side, a lot of Republicans say this is terrible because it's going to come down harder on people that don't make a ton of money. And there's been a lot of uh, hyperbole, frankly, about what tax agents are going to do. But nonetheless, I think that big aircraft carrier that is the IRS agency is slightly starting to turn around now. All right. And, you know, we had the incident of the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, being a little not quite AWOL, but disappeared for a few days. Now we understand, you know, that from published reports that he's directing the bombing of the Houthis from his (laughs) hospital bed. What a great country, huh? So any reaction on Hill or any action likely to be taken? Because even some Democrats were saying, "Mm, this doesn't look so good. Right. That was one of the things that Senator Tim Kaine said he had some issues with. Uh, He's a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. He doesn't think that necessarily, as some people said, that maybe the defense secretary should resign. But clearly, I think there is a push among lawmakers to clarify what happens when you have, admittedly, maybe a rare incidence like this. I mean, it's certainly something that got a lot of attention, especially when we learned that he has a form of cancer. But uh, a lot of people also don't want to come down too hard on him. Uh, There was a lot of things, as you know, that happened at that time. You had another person who was very high ranking, who was out sick. But really, when you're talking about matters of war, as you just mentioned, you have to have a clear line of where things are going if somebody is out. And that's where I think the lawmakers are really going to make a push. And I wonder if underlying that concern is the is the slight drone of the fact that his condition might be more serious than even we know now, because a prostate ectomy, that's pretty radical. 
because most men that have a prostate problem, even cancer, there are much less radical ways of dealing with it. And right. And so I think that he was hopeful, as many people would be in, in a health situation like that, that it could be taken care of fairly quickly. I have heard medical experts say that clearly that there were complications, and I think that also contributed to the uncertainty that maybe he was thinking, okay, I can get this done fairly quickly and move on. And as we know, with health, you just don't know what's going to happen. And I think that uncertainty is what makes a lot of people nervous on Capitol Hill. All right. So what's going to happen this week then? There's more Hunter Biden stuff, maybe, (laughs) in in the budget. (laughs) Well, there's going to be a lot of surprises, maybe not on the level of Hunter Biden. That was quite an incident last week. But I I think we're going to just get into that crunch time again over the next few days. You know, we're coming off a holiday. And as we talked about this at the end of last year, there wasn't going to be enough time to get to all of these bills. And I think they have no choice, really, but to go for a continuing resolution. I think the real question will be, how long is it going to be? Right. And if it goes for the rest of the fiscal year, then sequestration occurs. So that might please the more conservative end of the Republicans because it brings cuts automatically. Right. And that was the whole idea behind the debt ceiling agreement. On the other hand, a lot of people say they don't want a long-term agreement, talking about the military, because if you lock in those figures, they say that's effectively a cut for the Pentagon. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks so much. You bet. And good to have you in studio in person today. Nice to be here. All right. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 57 past the hour. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and The Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. 
And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
what do they need when they need it, and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.